You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, queers. Welcome back. Thesis on Joan is a podcast dedicated to amplifying voices from the LGBTQ plus community in the New York performing arts scene and examining the industry from a queer perspective. Join us as we sit down with groundbreaking theater folk from Brooklyn cabaret performers to people backstage and on Broadway. For many queers, theater has been an escape. This podcast looks to have open conversations on where we've come from and where we're heading as a community while queering the canon along the way. Hi, Holly. Hi, Megan. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. We're here. <laughs> Can you believe we've been putting out podcast episodes for almost a year now? Wow. Nope. Can't believe it. Feels yeah. so much longer and so much shorter. That's true. I mean, last year's Pride, I feel like I just have 2019 memories, like superimposed over 2020 Pride. Uh-huh. Like, I don't even remember what I did for Pride last year. Didn't you go uh, hiking or something? Oh, probably. That sounds that sounds on brand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did nothing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. It was a it was a very strange year. Uh-huh. Um, but I feel like. I always am so excited for different pride events and like seeing the things that people come up with. Um, so if you were planning your dream pride celebration or event, mm-hmm. what, what would it be? What would it involve? Who would you have there? What are your, what are your thoughts? Oh, this is such a good question. Um, I think it would not be in summer. Uh, <laughs> it would be in the fall where Oh, 100%. We could gather in, because queers look so cute in layers. Mm-hmm. So I want to mm-hmm. be able to wear at least like two to three layers and a jacket. Um, so then I also wouldn't feel like I don't want anyone to touch me because I'm sweaty and hot. True. So first of all, I move pride to fall. So like October. And then, uh, I, then I think I'd be better with like crowds. Uh, cause you, cause, yeah, the parade and even like the festival stuff feels like really overwhelming to me. I like totally. like the Dyke March is usually my favorite event because it feels less crowded because we're moving and mm-hmm. everyone's just so happy to be there and it doesn't feel like corporate pride. Um, and then I went to the Queer Liberation March in 2019 and that had a, a very similar vibe. Um, and that was a really great space to be in too. So what about you? What's your what's your dream pride? Yeah, something that is definitely not June. I feel like 
every memory I have of Pride has like an underlayer of me feeling like I'm dehydrated and need to take a nap. So it's, that's an unfortunate thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think fall is my favorite season. So I just assume it's most queers favorite season, right? So, and you're right. I love a good flannel layer. I love a good like boot, you know, so we gotta, mm-hmm. I, I feel like fall's where it's at. Um, but yeah, definitely outdoors with a lot of space, a lot of room to like take your people and go have conversations and hang out. Mm-hmm. Um, somewhere where we can all partake in the things we like to enjoy freely and without any um, <laughs> oversight. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and entertainment too, just like a rotating, like maybe there's a stage somewhere and there's like some rotating drag Kings we can check out mm-hmm. and like different performances and things. And um, I just like to be entertained. I like to be, um, I don't like to be hungry and I don't like to be hot. So <laughs> Lots like, of bathrooms that are clean. So many bathrooms. Gender yeah. neutral. <laughs> Where's the most practical? I mean, you need a practical queer to plan a pride. Mm -hmm. I feel like every pride committee needs a really good practical queer. Yeah. I like it kind of sounds almost like a Comic Con situation, but outside uh, where there's like Mm -hmm. panels you can attend, or like instead of panels, it's like a poetry reading or a performance or, you know, whatever, a drumming circle. Um, oh, that's true. Like at, how at cons they have like, if you love like this show, uh-huh. come into this room. Yeah, like the queer <laughs> version of that. That would be that would be so fun. We should go all the niches. Yeah, we should go to FlameCon this year. It's like um, I haven't been, but you 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 sound like you know. <laughs> no, I haven't been, but I know all. I'm like very excited to check it yeah. out. Yeah, because uh, it's like queer nerd stuff, right? Yeah. What if there was a book swap? Oh, dreams. I would say the only way I would be okay with it not happening outside is if it's in a giant bookstore somewhere. Yeah. It could be like all over the city. Like you go to the book swap at, uh, you go to Blue Stockings or the Bureau of General Services Queer Division bookstore, which is the only queer bookstore in New York that's left. Um, yeah. So like a full scavenger hunt, like choose your own adventure around the city. Yeah. I mean, in my dream, all these places are relatively close to each other. So you don't have to like commute too far either. (laughs) Yeah. That was a very good point too. And there's just a giant like central park area that's no one else can be in except queers and their people. (laughs) I feel like we need this. And, and everyone has their dogs at this imaginary Mm -hmm. pride too. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I'm excited to just have any sort of pride like festivities this year and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that with the action of the up along with some other things. Yay. Um but yeah, folks here have other like interesting pride things or if there's an event that actually is what we described, <laughs> please send it our way. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see you there. Yeah, what a dream. Um so we just finished like very recently, especially for you, Holly, you finished <laughs> watching uh, Once Upon a Korean Time. Uh, in celebration of AAPI Heritage Month, my Yee Theater Company presents a benefit reading of Daniel K. Isaac's Once Upon a Korean Time. Mixing traditional Korean fables with the horrors of the Korean War, Isaac's new play is a funny and deeply moving analog for the experiences of the Korean-American diaspora. Isaiah deftly moves his characters through time, tracing the legacies of trauma that are passed from one generation to the next and the various coping mechanisms each
each one uses to soldier on. And it's written by Daniel K. Isaac and directed by Ralph B. Pina. Yeah, so this show was uh, a multi-part kind of vignette, but they all really wrapped up in a beautiful way Uh (laughs) eventually um, with some little interludes that were more modern era, like pop culture-y to camera Mm -hmm. or to audience. Yeah, the interruptions. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I love. I would watch a whole show of the interruptions. Yeah. I was really, uh, first of all, I just have to say like this show, oh my, I was dying over all of it. Like I was so funny and smart and beautiful. Um, really hit me in the feels as a, as a queerian, uh, queer Korean as an adopted person. I, I didn't know there was going to be an adoptee story in it and that kind of floored me. Um, yeah, but oh my God, I, I was, I love the show. And it was way more uh, queer than I think either of us were expecting it to be. Yeah. I, I I was like, oh, okay, there's hints of it. And then, like, as I kept watching, I'm like, oh, this is, like, kind of, like, <laughs> really cool undertones, radically queer. Um, yeah, so that was a great surprise. It's also so much fun to, like, I, I love seeing shows that aren't marketed as, like, come on in, gays. Yeah. And it's just, like, there. Like, you you don't have to, like note to the audience before you watch it that it's queer you know it's just like something that's part of the show um yeah so I enjoyed that when we were trying to figure out what show to watch for this episode I suggested this play and I'm like I mean Diana O's involved who's a previous guest we know is queer and the playwright's queer so I'm like I'm assuming there's gonna be some queerness and oh boy it paid off oh can we talk about Diana? Oh my show? God. <laughs> Incredible. Oh, first of all, what an entrance. Um, they, yes. they play the like model wife of one of the soldiers and, um, they show up in kind of like a, a, fo- a photo spread in a newspaper, like a model would. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, so oh, funny. it's hilarious. Um, she sings, Arirang, which is a, a Korean folk song I learned about in my Korean language class. And it was very exciting to see it here. Um, nice. And she does it in like this like pop voice, Britney Spears voice. Oh, it was hilarious. <laughs> I mean, so good throughout. They were like so many different characters. Everyone in this show was incredible. Mm-hmm. And like the, the acting it asks a lot of the performers because they're playing some very different roles throughout. Um, And I think everyone had like a really cool standout moment. So it was, I'm excited to follow all these people and everything they ever do ever again. (laughs) And and another one of the interruptions I really, or just hit me in the face was um, Diana O's actually. And they were talking about, the the man who created the surgery uh, for cleft lips to repair cleft lips. And I had a cleft lip and that was like one of the main reasons why I was put up for adoption. And, uh, and I did know that it was um, someone in Korea during the Korean war who created the surgery. And it's just so ironic that like, I couldn't get it done there um, and had to be adopted to get that. Yeah. Anyway, but also he developed the, the double eyelid surgery and Diana reads from this paper, this book that he wrote about developing this work and the blatant, terrible racism about Korean people. 
uh, or the way he talks about them. And uh, yeah, it was, and then there's like photos of like before and after, and like, this is still a very common practice in Korea. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, again, it's just like a way that like how gen, like one thing has spawned like generations of, you know, trauma. I don't know if you would call that trauma, but like how it's affected us, like, for decades since then. I will take an entire class that Diana teaches on, like, their views of Korean yeah. history and culture. <laughs> that was... Also, the return of emoji faces. It's a thing. Brilliantly used. Uh, very, very well used. Yep, to turn into <laughs> a white person when they were quoting the white people. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was great. I have to tell you that I was, uh, follow, I started following a lot of the cast on Instagram and the, mm-hmm. one of the actresses, uh, Shannon Tio, Tayo, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that. I was like, Oh, she looks so familiar. I've seen her in something. And then I realized I had seen her in a reading of a play called Ms. Oriental, um, that my friend was involved mm. in. And I'm like, great. Now I know. And then I was looking at her Instagram. And she played a Joan in uh, the Baltimore <gasps> Stewish production of Final no. Home with Andrea Prestonario. No. <laughs> what? Yeah. Wait. <laughs> which which actor is this? What, uh, what role were they in? The, she show? plays the third woman, and she plays the adoptee at the end. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> I was going to text it to you, but then I wanted to get your reaction. No, <laughs> but like, yes, I see it uh, and it's perfect and amazing. Oh, where can we get that recording? <laughs> we have to call up Andrea. They're like, Hey, <laughs> Oh my goodness. I love That's incredible. Yeah. I love in the interruptions. Um, they did it with like the actors in front of a white screen. And first of all, shout out to the lighting and like the video videography and the editing. Oh, it's cool. incredible. Mm-hmm. And it makes you feel like you're watching a movie, but um, for Shannon's interruption, she, you get like a full body shot and just her, her costume, her outfit, whatever. I was just like, Oh, such a Joan. <laughs> yeah. And that was honestly the moment where I'm like, oh, okay, this place queer. <laughs> when she had her interruptions because she was talking about korean cinderella right Uh uh-huh yeah and have and realizing that that moment when she was a lesbian is because um what the this turtle that's helping out cinderella blushes (laughs) and she's like yeah i blush too because cinderella's hot (laughs) (laughs) that was a great moment um and the way the stories connect together, oh. I thought I was following it and I wasn't, um, but like not in a, it wasn't clear way in a way, like the playwright had other intentions for it and wanted to wrap it up at the end for you. Mm-hmm. And the way it was done was just so like beautiful and rewarding and like overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I, it was awesome. Yeah. I was curious of like how much the actors have been involved in creating this play. Cause the, the interruptions seem really personal to them, but maybe that's just, they're really great actors. Uh, but also like they use their real names in a lot of the, um, right. scenes. So yeah, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I was wondering that too. It reminded me a lot of, have you read the book Homegoing? 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. It reminded me a lot of oh, that. Oh, yeah. Um, where, Great connect. Yeah. Uh, that's also an excellent book if you if you want to read it. Um, but kind of like generations of folks um, and how they how kind of like war and colonialism or slavery in terms of homecoming have like affected this different families through mm -hmm. hundreds of years. Like the inherited trauma of it and how mm -hmm. it, um, I wish we could tell everyone to go watch this. Yeah. I hope that it has a, another, it, honestly, it worked so well as a digital piece. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it would, be incredible in person as well but it was really well done this way yeah um and they i couldn't believe they say in the beginning that all the actors were shot separately for covid safety but there's like group scenes where they're all talking to I, each other where i'm like i can't believe that they weren't actually in the same room because they're reacting so well to each other yeah shout out to the editing on yeah that. That was Oh, and this was so funny too. Like I couldn't believe yeah. there's um the second kind of chunk is about uh comfort women and like oof, what a heavy, heavy topic. But like it was also so funny. Yeah, the way that they related to each other in the scene was hilarious yeah. and it was so dark, but like I was laughing through it too. Yeah. It was... And and like I it felt nice to not be like so weighed down by like the heaviness of it that you mm -hmm. could like their coping mechanism was through humor. Um, and it allowed you to like watch it without feeling as traumatized as like what the actual situation was. Um, and yeah. And like just them building community and like solidarity or not even solidarity, but like, yeah, community with each other. Um, was really beautiful to watch and oof, what a trip. Yeah. And some of these Korean folktales are like kind of dark. Yeah. <laughs> that was, I, I didn't know any of these, like these stories or these versions of, you know, stories. And it was, that was cool in and of itself to just kind of learn a little bit more about the folklore that, was the shared uh, understanding for a lot of the characters in the play. Yeah. No, I didn't know any of these stories either. And it brought up a lot of feels for me about like as an adoptee and like not having access to Korean culture at all growing up and like, Oh yeah, these were, you know, one of the monologues, the interruptions was about like how much an actor knew about uh, like American culture um, going on and on about details that he knew about like theater and pop culture and even like philosophy um, that's white centered. And he's like, and I can't like, can you name a single Korean story or like a Korean song? And you can't. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that's definitely been my history. And, you know, we were talking, you know, with Melissa and Kit about um, Asian elders. And that's a thing that I haven't had in my life because I haven't known any um, elder Asian people or people to pass these stories on to me. So it's only through things like this or like for me seeking it out, um, do I get these, these like glimpses of Korean culture. So it's so important for me to see things like this too. And I wish there was more of it. Um, yeah. Oof. And that uh, the last story with the, adoptee and her birth mom oh that like gutted me that was yeah it wasn't what I thought it was going to be and then as it kept going I was like wow this is 
Yeah. And that it was, it's paired uh, with the background of like the LA race riots. Right. Mm -hmm. And her birth mom owns uh, like a convenience store that's being attacked. Um, People are throwing like bricks through the windows and she's her birth mom's telling her folk stories, Korean folk stories to like get them through it. And, and I couldn't believe that it was like, talking about this moment of history and personalizing it so and humanizing it so deeply mm-hmm. and also just being like an amazing scene between a birth mother and an adoptee which we very rarely get to see um so that that just blew my mind um and I also want to I'm so happy that when the final moment without giving it away but it's more like contemporary um the two, the lesbian couple shouts out their queer sex party. I was like, yes, it's not just the men. Mm-hmm. Well, they have like a baby. So yeah. <laughs> I loved that. That was so uh, good. I'm like, that's the queer community I want. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know. It's like that. That seemed like a great uh, Korean barbecue party. Yeah. Was happening at the end. Also, it was like an LGBTQ adopted Korean support group. And I'm like, how do I find that? <laughs> yeah. Is this based in reality? <laughs> the playwright also has um, a series called According to My Mother, uh, where he talks about his relationship to his mom and like being gay and having a Korean mom and what that's like. <laughs> um, and I've watched what's available and it's also amazing. So check that out. So we, we encourage everyone to stay attentive if this comes back we will let you know mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure it was only this past weekend we're recording this on uh may 23rd um but yeah really incredible show and hopefully it lives on in some capacity yes produce this i will come see it many times and bring everyone i know Okay, so as we mentioned at the top of the episode, June is very much upon us, uh, heat and all. And, you know, unfortunately, until our dream world happens and Pride gets moved to fall, um, (laughs) we are excited to celebrate with everyone uh, with the upcoming events this month. So we just wanted to shout out a couple of our favorite events, uh, the first being Dyke March, which is happening this year on June 26, 5 to 8 p.m. As always, a step-off is happening from Bryant Park, um, heading down to Washington Square Park, led by the incredible drummers of Fogo Azul. I mean, you can't have Dyke March without them. Um, also wanted to n- mention, if folks are interested, they are doing new martial training via Zoom. They also have a couple trainings in person, um, but for folks who don't know, marshals lead the dike march. They run ahead, block off the traffic. Um, they're incredible. So if that's something you're interested in doing, uh, check out uh, NYC Dark March to find out more about becoming a marshal. Uh, they're also doing a fundraiser, uh, which I thought was especially uh, might be interesting to our listeners at a queer barber in the East Village, uh, Harari. This is <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. She just started there. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. Um, so if you go on June 12th or 13th, 20% of all their uh, proceeds are going to support Dyke March and their affiliated um, uh, efforts. So we can post that in our show notes as well. Uh, and then the next day, save up your energy because Queer Liberation March is on June 27th at 230 
also at Bryan Park, same place, easy directions to remember. <laughs> um, and Queer Liberation March was founded on no cops, no corporations, no politicians. I have not been, as Holly mentioned, they've been previously. I'm very excited to check it out this year. And we'll post um, links in our bio so you can find out more about the Queer Liberation March. We support NYC Pride's decision to exclude any police from participating in the parade for the next few years. Um, we are still supporting the Communities United for Police Reform in their efforts to um, defund the NYPD. And there are still actions going on now. The, the defunding that was promised hasn't happened. Um, so now we're, they're trying to put pressure on uh, Congress members and representatives to actually make that happen. Um, and you can help. So check them out. Uh, they're at Change the NYPD. And there's uh, links we'll put in the show notes that you can contact a representative to demand uh, the defunding of the NYPD that they've been working on for a long time before even last summer. Um, and we still need to maintain the pressure to get this accomplished. Also demand for New York City budget justice with tweeting, uh, Instagramming, emailing your Congress people that despite the promises, the NYPD budget was not reduced by $1 billion last year. And um, CPR, what they're called for short, will have the information for you to do that. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So today we are excited to welcome two Adams to the show. Definitely our first time having two Adams. <laughs> um, and our first Adam is Adam El Sayeg, is an Egyptian playwright, dramaturg, and producer. Through his producing and creative practices, Adam interrogates issues of immigration, colonialism, and the experience of queerness in the Middle East. Some of Adam's plays include Memorial, Jamestown Williamsburg, and Drowning in Cairo. Adam is a co-founder of the Criminal Queerness Festival and a fellow at the Laboratory for Global Performance and Politics in Georgetown University. Adam's work has been seen at IRT Theater, Dixon Place, Golden Thread Productions, and the NYU Abu Dhabi Arts Center. He holds a BA in theater with an emphasis in playwriting and dramaturgy from NYU Abu Dhabi and is currently a PhD student in theater and dramaturgy at CUNY's Graduate Center. And then Adam Alsis Rubin is the founder and artistic director of National Queer Theater in New York. At NQT, Alsis Rubin helps conceive of the Criminal Queerness Festival, Write It Out, Sage Elder Theater Arts Series, Pint Size Plays at the Eagle NYC, and Queer Village Reading Series. Formerly the education associate at New York Theater Workshop, his work as an actor, director, and playwright has brought him to the Guthrie, Lincoln Center, BAM, The Civilians, ACT, New Conservatory Theater Center, New York Theater Workshop, Dixon Place, and Arts Emerson. 
He has also worked as a teaching artist with refugee, homeless, LGBTQ, and incarcerated youth all over the world. In 2016, Otsis Rubin served as personal assistant to AIDS Memorial Quilt founder Cleve Jones, with whom he directed LGBTQ and union solidarity campaigns. His writing on theater and activism has been published by HowlRound and the Teaching Artist Journal. Uh, hello, Adam and Adam. Uh, we're going to distinguish between you, as you suggested, kindly suggested, as Adam O-R and Adam A-E. Uh, but thank you for being here with us for Thesis on Joan. Uh, welcome to the podcast. We usually start with having our guests share their name, their pronouns, and then anything else you'd like to share about how you identify. Um, do you want to start with Adam A-E? Sure. Uh, thank you so much for having us. I'm very excited to be uh, speaking with you today and talking more about our platform. My name is Adam Ashraf El Saig. I use he, him, his pronouns. I'm a playwright, theater producer, and immigrant from Egypt living in New York. Hey, everyone. My name is Adam Odsess Rubin. My pronouns are he, him, his. Thank you so much for having us. It's great to be here. And I am... Um, uh, an American-born theater maker from Berkeley, California. Welcome, welcome. So let's start with um, talking about the National Queer Theater. Can you tell us a little bit more about the origin of the National Queer Theater and how your work crosses generations? And maybe we'll start with Adam O.R. for this question. Absolutely. I founded National Queer Theater in the spring of 2018. We're three years old. We're having our birthday, yay, for National Queer Theater and um, I was so shocked when I arrived in New York City and realized there wasn't really an established queer theater company. And I, I had worked at the queer theater in San Francisco, New Conservatory Theater, and felt like I needed that home as a queer theater maker and knew other young queer artists who needed a place to work and also to just get more active in the community to give back to the queer community to use our art as a tool for queer liberation. And um, while I was in grad school at NYU studying applied theater, working with um, refugee youth, immigrant youth, working with seniors, um, really doing theater in non-traditional contexts, um, I realized I wanted National Queer Theater, this queer theater company, to really focus on education and community engagement as much as it focused on producing new queer plays by and for the queer community. And so a lot of our work, in addition to the productions we do, the readings, the workshops, and all those amazing programs with professional artists, we also work with a lot of community members um, through LGBTQ nonprofit organizations. So in terms of our cross-generational work, you know, a lot of our artists are millennials, they're in their 20s, they're in their 30s, young professionals, but a lot of our students are teenagers, young adults who may be homeless or experiencing homelessness because of being rejected by their families after coming out. Uh, we work with a group at SAGE uh, in New York City, working with LGBTQ elders, who some of whom were like around at the time of the Stonewall riots, which is really incredible and are really the pioneers Amazing. of our movement. So we love working with our you know, 20 something young artists, but also want to make sure we're engaging with our youth and elders who are even more vulnerable as members of our queer and trans communities. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, you mentioned queer liberation um, when talking about the company and how does National Queer Theater center queer liberation in your work? 
Yeah, it's a great question. You know, a lot of theater companies, their mission is about creating exciting new plays. Like that, that's kind of like the gist of a lot of New York City theater companies, which is great. And their goal is to create amazing productions and get a New York Times review and get a show to Broadway or, you know, something to that effect. Our mission is different. We do want to create, you know, great plays and great productions, but the mission is liberation, equality, equity for queer and trans people. That is the end goal. Theater is the vehicle, is the tool, is the resource to how we get there. And so we really view National Queer Theater as kind of the artistic creative wing of the queer rights movement rather than another New York City theater company. I almost care more that we are doing our job as a community center more than we're doing our job as a traditional theater company. Yeah, we all often, and when we're programming the festival or when we are speaking about other programs, um, the one of the first things that come up in conversations is the community outreach, the community engagement. Who is this for? Um, we, we've often spoken about the company and the festival, obviously, as um, at the intersection of community engagement and social justice and theater, which is not um, my experience working with a lot of other theater institutions. It's it's the community outreach can often feel like it's the thing we're thinking about after the play has been built or after we've decided on what the season looks like. And that for us, the model is very much the other way around. Uh, it's it's very different from having um, like a DEI person who is just trying to make small changes happen when that work is kind of just baked into your mission. So speaking of the community, that um, National Queer Theater is working so hard to build. For a theater that works so much to build in-person community, how have you continued to build that community with all of the challenges the last year has brought? Yeah, when COVID started, it was a big question. Can we create community online? Can we create community through Zoom? And we were all kind of skeptical. We were like, you know, community feels like something that needs to be experienced in person. Theater is such an in-person art form. It's about sharing food together and wine and seeing a show and talking about it afterwards. And you do lose a lot online, for sure. I'm not saying uh, doing this work online is as good as working in person, but we found that we still could create community online. And I'll give you one example is our program, Write It Out, with The Lark and Moby and Donye, our love, an incredible, incredible queer playwright. Um, we started this program for playwrights living with HIV or any writer living with HIV. And it was a 10 week long playwriting course. It ended with a sharing read by professional actors on World AIDS Day. And through this playwriting course, which was focused on writing and not on acting, which is really difficult to do on Zoom, we were able to build community amongst this group of students, of writers, of playwrights. Um, that was really beautiful to do online and we can engage people from all over the country. And in our criminal queerness festival, which we did online with Dixon place and the mayor's office of immigrant affairs last summer, we were also able to invite people from all over the country and all over the world. And we had people tuning in from countries that actually censored LGBTQ art like ours, which was incredible because the whole point of the festival is 
promoting, celebrating, showcasing the work of LGBTQ artists who are facing censorship in their home countries. And the fact that we could actually reach people in those countries using Zoom was mind-blowing and has opened up a whole new world to how we engage audiences outside of New York City. I think as as an international artist, um, I, I came on first in my engagement with the festival as a playwright. The festival, Adam and I co-founded the festival when I shared, after I shared uh, one of my first plays with him uh, while still living in Egypt, which was about um, uh, the Queen Boat, which is an event that is like in a lot of ways similar to what Stonewall represents in the American zeitgeist in the Egyptian context. But I could not really produce this play in Egypt. Um, and um, and Adam and I had this discussion about criminalization and about how many countries continue to criminalize queer art, queer experiences. And that was where the idea for the festival really came from. And so um, in the first iteration, I was a playwright. After that, a dramaturg and this year coming on as a co-producer. I think um, part of that journey for me was that like, there was this question of like, why are we really doing this? We're doing this for an American audience. Why does it matter uh, if the people who these stories are about can't really um, hear these stories? Like what is the impact and like, what are the ethics of what we're doing? And, um, and I, I've been navigating that question for like two or three years now. And it's, it's changed how I've thought about it in many ways. And I've, I've, I have found a lot of value in the work we do, but COVID, um, and I, I, I just want to put it out there. I don't love Zoom theater. I do not hope this, that we continue to make Zoom plays after this moment. <laughs> but COVID um, very much, um, to me, helped define this question and this work because we were able, as Adam said, we were able to present the plays and create community and cast and uh, create community engagement and outreach with people all around the world. And um, this year, we pretty definitively knew pretty definitively knew we we did not want to be virtual, but we did not quite know. Um, one of the first things that I came in with was, okay, we're not going to be virtual, but we're not going to go back to only thinking about a New York City audience. Like, we're going to think about everything we learned from Zoom in the last year, year and a half, and think about what it means to continue to create performance that is live, but that will also, in some capacity, be accessible to... Um, to audiences and artists and communities elsewhere. And and I'm very excited. I think we've found some exciting solutions and ways to engage that. And yeah, I mean, at this point, the first iteration of the festival was an indoor theater festival, and then it was on Zoom, and now we're doing an outdoor theater festival. It feels like we're constantly <laughs> the form, we're constantly querying the form, and the form is allowing us to do new things. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, queers really know how to reinvent themselves um so that's exciting I, mean, I can't wait to see where next year's festival will be like in space um <laughs> and you know you already mentioned some of the programs uh that national queer theater is doing um is there, are there any more that you haven't mentioned yet that you want to talk about and you know we're especially interested in this new partnership with the dramatist guild uh the new visions fellowship uh and when can we see the new visions fellows work Absolutely. I'm really excited about the new Visions Fellowship. It's a new partnership between the Dramatist Guild of America and National Queer Theatre to really amplify the voices of Black, trans, and gender nonconforming playwrights in the U.S. 
And this came about, we started planning this kind of at the height of the Black Lives Matter protests last June, and really thinking about how both organizations can really step up for Black trans playwrights specifically. And we are working with Roger Q. Mason, who is a terrific playwright, as our lead mentor in the program. We got 44 applications from playwrights across the country, really stepping forward with new visions for the American theater as Black writers, as trans writers, as gender non-conforming writers, in really inspiring, innovative, daring uh, ways. And it just got us really enthusiastic about this work. And we've selected two fellows who are both receiving $5,000 stipends, a year of mentorship from Roger, a five-year membership at the Dramatist Guild of America, and a final showcase of an hour of their work in a final stage reading with trans actors, directors, stage managers, which is also a great employment opportunity for those other artists who are not playwrights. And um, I can't tell you their names yet, We are getting them new headshots with some photographers, which is going to be really fun. So we can really do a splashy um, showcase announcement of their incredible work and their incredible achievement getting this fellowship. And we are so excited to work with these playwrights at National Queer Theater for the next year as kind of playwrights in residence to really change the face of American theater. Because, I mean, there's never really been a TGNC um, playwright produced on Broadway and we're trying to change that or, or off Broadway um, and really trying to change what the American theater looks like and queer the stage. Those staged readings, is, is that something that the public will be able to see as well or will that be more internal for you guys? Yeah, the staged readings will not be until next spring because we're just starting workshops for the fellows right now. Uh, and we're looking, we're talking to different theaters in New York City and around New York City to potentially host that stage reading. So all the producers listening, you know, email me. Uh, (laughs) But yes, they'll be open to the public. uh, And we're going to really focus on inviting literary managers, artistic directors, producers, um, people who can champion these playwrights work um, to, you know, come see these plays because we don't want anyone to have the excuse of saying like, oh, I don't know any black trans playwrights. I, I don't know any um, of these writers to produce their work. Uh, we're going to be like, no, here are two incredible playwrights. And we're also going to showcase all of our finalists, all of our honorable mentions, so that there is a, a whole cohort, a whole um, you know team of incredible playwrights who um, whose work we can just amplify to you know have visibility in the industry. Awesome. We'll have to have a new visions episode of the podcast as as we get closer to that. That would be so cool. Um, And so going back to the criminal queerness festival, which we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about with you guys. um, We we talked a little bit about the inspiration, which is the two of you meeting and exchanging Adam A's play, but how did it go from the idea to produce Adam's play to the idea of a full festival? Where did that come about? Yeah. Uh, once Adam and I started talking about Drowning in Cairo, Adam's play, and I'd like to say we met on Skype. This was pre-Zoom. We met on Skype, <laughs> throwback to, to Skype. Um, I had worked with a really 
phenomenal um, playwright from Tanzania named Nick Hadikwa Moluko um, in San Francisco when I lived there. And Nick uh, was a Columbia MFA playwriting graduate, um, had been in the United States for a while, but was not able to produce um, any of his queer trans plays in East Africa and told him about Adam's play. And um, I don't remember the order of things, but I think the three of us together on an email chain were like, you know, we really need to put these works together and find other playwrights um, in this situation where they can't produce their works in their home country. And, and Nick actually, I want to give Nick credit for the wonderful name Criminal Queerness Festival. Um, and we brought together, uh, we brought in Yilong Lu, who's a, an incredible playwright from China, and Fatima Man, who is a wonderful playwright from um, Pakistan, who Adam introduced us to. Um, and we did this little version of the festival at IRT Theater in the West Village near Stonewall and got recommended by the New York Times, this tiny little, you know, nugget festival. And it was just so exciting. That's amazing. Yeah. And I feel like you all shot up into the, <laughs> the queer theater world or the theater world after that. Um, and you talked a little bit about thinking about the ethics of, you know, getting these plays from other countries and then only the folks in New York being able to see it. What do you think, about your responsibility to the artists, you know, as a whole for presenting um, their work and, and their respective uh, queer communities in their countries? I mean, I, I think I very much approach this from the lens of um, being a playwright myself and having been like in like the shoes of these artists. Um, it's always a question of we're interested in supporting playwrights and, uh, and people's experiences rather than, centering a specific narrative. I think that's something that is very foundational to how we have conceived of and talked about the festival, which is to say that we're very interested in um, in supporting playwrights' vision, whether they want to talk about criminalization, whether they want to talk about something else. We, we are very strongly uh, proponents of um, centering stories of queer joy, centering stories of queer community beyond uh, just... Um, manifestations of queerness that might that some might interpret as trauma um and so we're very much interested in obviously the safety and security as well of artists and so every year one of the first questions that come up is what is your comfort levels around um how we can talk about the festival how we can talk about your play who do you want in the room when the play is happening um what are the institutions you want in the room um who, who do you want to see display? What is the kind of conversation that you want to have dramaturgically around the play? And so we very much see the playwrights we serve, specifically international playwrights, as our key constituency. And this year, the festival centers on plays from Lebanon, Mexico, and Iraq. What, what came first, the artist or the ideas for the countries of focus this year? The way we choose our place for the Criminal Queerness Festival is fairly similar to our season planning process. Um, we always work by committee. I really don't like the model of an artistic director just choosing the place themselves because I think you end up with a very narrow view of what is quote unquote like good and bad, which is entirely subjective and different depending on your lived experience. Um, so we get together a committee of artists. We open submissions and try to promote that submission process 
as far around the world as we can and go through a lot of institutions working with um, international artists like the Artistic Freedom Initiative or the LARC uh, to try to get the word out there as far and wide as possible. Um, and then we read scripts. We select ones we think could be a good fit for the festival. And then this year, what I really love is that the finalists were determined by previous playwrights from the festival. So it was a panel of all international queer playwrights who were evaluating these plays and choosing other international queer playwrights whose work they wanted to support with these productions. Um, so we want to make sure we're uplifting um, playwrights from countries where they might not be able to preserve, uh, present the work otherwise. You know, we get a lot of playwrights from Kansas and Canada and England who don't read the instructions. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, as long as they meet that criteria, it's really the focus on the work, on the craft, on the human, on the artist, rather than trying to, like, hit these certain countries, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I the thing that I was going to say initially as a response to this question was that I I'm very interested in cultivating voices that we're excited by and um and I'm much less interested in I think there's a model of curation that I see coming from an outsider lens um in the American theater that is like addressing specific subjects or specific regions because they have some local relevance to the United States or because we're trying to make some political statement about what is happening in other parts of the world. And I'm I'm much less invest, invested in that model of curation or programming. I'm interested in, um, you know, examining voices that feel like they will contribute to the zeitgeist, that will contribute to the conversations that we're having and um, and starting from there. So in the in the first year we had plays from egypt pakistan uh a, well playwright from china and a playwright from tanzania the second year we had plays from venezuela or playwrights or theater makers from venezuela india um lebanon and syria and this year we have these three plays from these three countries and it was never a conversation that started from who are what are these what are the countries we want to put in, together? But rather, like, who are the people that are exciting us at this moment? Why are they exciting us? Um, what can they contribute to the idea of this festival, and what what would it mean to support them? Awesome, thank you. It's uh, it's interesting to hear about the committee selection too, uh, and then also thinking about how you put the team together. Um, do the do the playwrights and the directors come like as a package deal, or do you pair up folks? How what's that collaborative process like? Yeah, part of our the constituencies we're interested in supporting and our community is also uh, BIPOC and immigrant theater artists who are queer here in New York, and so something that I, again like when this festival first started, I was not in New York, and something that I feel like I was so uh, grateful to have had through the festival is to have built um, this community and company of theater makers from all around the world who are immigrants, who are BIPOC, who are New York based. And so at this point, we have a fairly robust community of queer international artists that are part of the festival community. And we've, we have like historically paired um, artists um, that are playwrights that we think are in line with directors and so on. Um, this year was our first iteration where 
a playwright and director apply together with a play as a duo. Um, and it's really exciting to see artists um, from very different cultural backgrounds, from very different stages of their career, who were just very excited to work together. Um, so we're going to see how we're going to see that play um, happening both at Lincoln Center and at the United Nations through the Open Culture Program. So let's start talking about the plays themselves. Um, can you tell us a little bit about each of the plays in this year's Criminal Queerness Festival and why everyone should see all of them? <laughs> Absolutely. So the first of our plays is called When We Write With Ashes by Victor Caceres, who is a very exciting Mexican-American non-binary playwright. And it's a two-character play that is told, uh, essentially how Victor describes it is that it is a, a play that happens between borders. And it's a story of these two lovers who are stranded in a truck as they over three different timelines, cross the U.S.-Mexico border, cross state borders, uh, and as they have like very absurdist and yet very viscerally real conversations about meth addiction, about uh, HIV status, about coming out to their families, and about the pandemic in the latter scene. So the second play is by Dima Mikhail Mata, who is an incredible uh solo performer, a queer woman from Lebanon. It's called um, This Is Not a Memorized Script. This is a well-rehearsed play. Um, and it is a play about um, her experience as a queer woman in Lebanon and essentially um, telling stories about representation, what it means for her as an international queer artist and how she's being read by the international media. And it's very much as a one-woman show that is about representation and the effects of that on her psyche. And it's, it's just very exciting work. And our third piece is by an Iraqi-American playwright who is actually a past company member in the last iteration of the festival, uh, Martin Zabari, who um, is presenting his play in development with us um, called Layalina. And it's a play that is also uh, straddling two different timelines across acts, um, telling the story of this Iraqi family as they migrate to the United States um, in the aftermath of the Iraq War, and then as they navigate the pandemic and the live the Black Lives Matter protests as an Arab American immigrant family in 2020 in the second act. Oh, they all sound amazing, uh, and you know there's such different experiences for each one. And do you see any common themes that run through them? I would say that my what I'm most excited about in all three plays is how the characters and the playwrights in these plays are very interested in the question of how the other is seeing them. So the not necessarily the, the white gaze, but maybe it's the white gaze in certain moments. It's the straight gaze. It's the and the gaze of like someone who was born in the United States from an immigrant lens. But a lot of these, a lot of what these playwrights are navigating in terms of the thematics of the pieces are very much about what it means to be looked at and this, and how the trauma of being looked at from uh, an essentialized lens or a tokenized lens or a minority lens impact, uh, impacts how one moves through the world. And how do those, how do these plays, um, I guess with that in mind, add to the mission of building a more equitable future for queer people everywhere? Yeah, I think our vision for the festival is really that in the future, moving forward, that there is no queer playwright on the planet 
who does not have a platform to share their work. We, you know, we are activists, but we're not politicians. We're not necessarily going to decriminalize homosexuality in some of these 70 countries that are currently criminalizing LGBTQ communities. But we hope to have an impact for writers around the world who are queer and trans. And in a more political sense, we do hope to influence policies, whether it's of American politicians, Americans working in the nonprofit space, that people can see these plays and have a more nuanced understanding of international LGBTQ issues. Um, I learned that a former UN ambassador in the US would take foreign leaders from more hostile countries to go see Rent on Broadway. I did this for years and was like, you know, your country criminalizes queer people. And instead of just um, scolding them, which can be very patronizing, um, was like, hey, you know, here is a, an artistic depiction of this community that we support, that we want you to support, that we want to be safe, and was trying to change the hearts and minds of these foreign leaders. I don't know how effective that was, but I, I think that's the power of theater to create political change. It's not necessarily directly changing policy, but it is giving people new frameworks to think about issues. Um, I remember being part of the Laramie Project when I was 16, and that play had such a profound impact on hate crimes legislation that led directly to President Obama in his first few months in office signing the Matthew Shepard Hate Crimes Act. So plays and musicals, they can change minds. They can change people's hearts. And, you know, hopefully that creates an impact around the world that playwrights know that there is a place for their work and that uh, there are people out there who are interested in their stories. Yeah, and so much of our work is also about the community outreach and scouting that is international. So part of me coming on as a co-producer has been um, part of the goal of what I'm aiming to do is to uh, continue to scout and identify new playwrights uh, who are queer elsewhere. And it's been it's been truly like some, some of the most exciting and transformative parts of uh, the festival's operations, which is to say that um, hearing from a reaching out to a playwright through someone who knows someone who knows someone uh, who is suddenly like, oh my God, you actually want to read my play. This thing has been sitting on my Google Drive for, I don't know, like six months and no one has, I've not been ready to share it with someone in my community or I knew that it wasn't going to be produced here. And just having these conversations, knowing that like there's a continuing, um, there's a continuing uplifting of these voices and people who are continuing to be inspired to work just by virtue and to continue to make artistic and creative creations based on um, based on our existence as a platform is so meaningful. And we obviously in, in, in the future hope to continue to grow in a way that allows us to accommodate and support and contribute to the professional growth of more of these playwrights. Yeah, that's really amazing. I, um, I had a friend that also worked uh, for the U.S. ambassador and in a previous administration. And I know that she like arranged a bunch of diplomats to go see like fun home together. And uh, yeah, who knows, like who knows mm. how to directly trace the impacts of that. But, you know, subconsciously it does humanize queer people in a way that I think 
you know, no other media can. Um, and, and thinking, going back to the festival and where it's taking place, uh, this year it's taking place outside and socially distanced. Um, and what opportunities and challenges, challenges has that provided for your artists? I think the opportunity is that, I mean, the big opportunity is that we can just do theater in person and to do theater in person in a way that helps the artists feel safe, that helps the audience feel safe, where people are not thinking about COVID while they're watching the play. They can just sit there and enjoy the play. And thank God, you know, COVID is really plummeting in New York City as we're talking. So by the end of June, I think we'll be in a really good place. But you know, June is beautiful in New York City outside in the summer. And how great to be outdoors and enjoy a play. I mean, we all love Shakespeare in the Park and are so excited it's coming back. And to present queer work outdoors uh, feels like a liberation in and of itself. Like we're not hiding. We're not in our closet. We're not in our theater. Like we're in the streets of New York City. We're at Lincoln Center, which is incredible. You know, presenting openly queer work that's really provocative and empowering. And it's not... Um, it's not meant to teach straight people or cis people about queer experiences. Like it's really by and for our communities, which is really um, special to us. And there are a lot of challenges. I mean, you have to think about rain. You have to think about heat. You have to think about where you're going to get power. Bathrooms. I have not talked about bathrooms more <laughs> in any other part of my life. It's like, where does the audience pee? Where do the artists pee? Uh, can we find a place with gender neutral bathrooms? Um, and all the city permitting, sound permitting, locking off the street, parking, sound, lighting. I, it's really like endlessly logistically complicated. I have had to learn so much about like technical elements <laughs> and generators. I didn't know what a generator was <laughs> until like a week ago. <laughs> I feel like this festival is actually making me straighter. <laughs> <laughs> or more of like a butch lesbian, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, th I think the really exciting opportunity that we're trying to take advantage of is this Open Culture NYC program which for those of you who don't know what that is, it's basically like outdoor dining for the performing arts. So since I believe the beginning of April, any performing arts organization in New York City has been able to apply for a $20 permit to perform outdoors and can charge tickets. Whereas previously, if you wanted to do an outdoor performance, it costs like $1,000 and you couldn't charge for tickets. So it's creating a huge economic and cultural opportunity for our nonprofit arts organizations, which is incredible. And it gives the people of New York like this great gift of being able to walk around the city and just stumble upon amazing art uh, or to, you know, get a ticket and support artists and see a great show outdoors, whether it's a salsa uh, group or it's a poetry slam or it's a musical. Um, so this Open Culture NYC program has given us the ability to present this work outdoors and, and do it in a way that's accessible for a smaller budget theater like ours. I hope they find a way to keep some form of that in the future. Because <laughs> I understand the safety uh, like benefits of it now, but like you're saying, the cultural, social benefits of it are 
incredible. So um, more outdoor theater, please. Um, less bathroom problems, though. That sounds terrible. <laughs> more <laughs> porta potties for New York City. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So as as queer stories um, continue to appear in more and more mainstream spaces, uh, in terms of the festival, but also the theater in general, why is it important to maintain queer creative spaces and homes and create authentic community engagement? I think it goes back to the mission of National Queer Theater, that our goal is queer liberation. Our goal is not the New York Times critics pick. When you have a queer show on Broadway, it's great. It's fun. People will go to see it. But the audience is mostly straight people, mostly cisgender people. And the level of community engagement um, is usually pretty minimal. Like, I know The Inheritance worked with Broadway Cares to give out red ribbons. Um, but that's <laughs> that's about the extent. And no shade on on that. But... You know, what we're doing is we're creating really impactful, robust, free community programming for our queer youth, for queer elders, for trans artists, for immigrant youth. Um, and I think it's actually that community engagement that is what makes it queer. It's not two guys or two girls kissing on the stage. It's actually queerness as a political act. It's actually that counterculture, that community benefit um, that makes the work significant. I mean, when people think back to the Black Panthers, and I was just watching um, Judas and the Black Messiah, like people think about, you know, Afros and guns and uh, berets, but really like the Black Panthers were about breakfast programs for black and brown youth in Oakland, California. So, you know, I think it really comes back to giving back to the community that has given so much to us. Um, and the fact that our artists also become teachers in a lot of these community programs is incredible. And it's, um, it's transformative. And I forgot the question you asked, but yeah, that's, that's my, <laughs> that's my answer. <laughs> You answered it. <laughs> Why is it important to have queer space? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I, I mean, I would also add, I, I think creating a safe rehearsal room for queer artists is really important to safety. It's important to respect. Um, you know, we, we, we always are practicing sharing pronouns. Um, we always are using spaces with gender neutral restrooms we are building queer community. We're, we're uh, giving people resources if they need queer affirming healthcare, queer affirming um, therapy, food resources. It's like a more holistic way to look at working with artists than I think a lot of other theater companies. I was going to jump us to our final sections that we do with every guest. Um, the first one we call queering the canon. Uh, so is there a musical or a play that you would like to queer? Um, why don't we start with Adam O.R.? I, I actually don't have an answer to this question because I so firmly believe that the canon needs to be completely ripped apart, that we need um, <laughs> not even a new canon. Like, we just need to get rid of this idea of a canon because it hasn't really served us as queer and trans people. 
And we need to really invest in new plays, new musicals in that development. It's going to reflect a much more diverse and accurate representation of what our community actually looks like compared to the traditional canon. I was going to say, uh, I mean, I 100% agree with Adam Otis Rubin on this notion of the canon. Just the notion of like categorizing things to say that like, this is the representation of blank. Um, I find that inherently not queer because in my, in my, uh, I think queerness is about multitudes and about expansiveness and about not limiting and not categorizing things. Um, all of that being said, though, I'm interested. I feel like we do have, I'm, we do have like a long queer lineage of plays that are just not talked about enough. And so many plays where queerness is, um, where queerness is in, uh, is written in subtext or even like looking at um, vaudeville and variety shows where like there was so much queerness mm. and like that history. I'm very excited about um, an excavation project of uncovering queer history in a way. Um, I know that like in Germany, for example, um, they uncovered a lot of the like uh, Weimar Republic era cabarets that were before the 1930s, before the Nazis took over. Um, There were a lot of queer cabarets happening in Berlin and a lot of uh, a lot of the immigrant theaters today in Berlin um, have found uh, the the librettos to these operas or these operettas and performed them with immigrant communities and with new Germans and so on. And I'm very interested in the embodiment of history in that way. I'm less interested in like a rejection of our history, but more like how do we contend with it and how do we navigate it. I'm so here for any revivals of German vaudeville, cabaret, <laughs> queerness. That sounds... Like, I will do, like, the Zeitfeld Follies and drag. I will take it. Yeah. <laughs> it basically was a drag. Like, <laughs> all the elements of it. Just, yeah, take the same costumes out of storage and wherever they are and just put it up. Um, amazing. And so outside of theater, so books, TVs, movies, we have people talk about live events. Um, what is your queer culture indulgence currently? Uh, we can start with Adam O'R again. I've been really impressed by HBO Max during the quarantine and how much like really awesome queer content they've put out. I loved watching Generations. I loved watching Veneno which is an incredible Spanish show. And um, I found It's a Sin, uh, the British AIDS drama, really heartbreaking and compelling. And uh, like, I I think there was like a lot of queer artists involved in making these shows. And oftentimes like queer movies and TV are made with a lot of like straight people writing and directing queer stories. And it's great to see that like high quality you know, globally distributed, authentic representation. It's awesome. Adam, you literally took like two of the three, like three of the things you said were things I was also <laughs> going to say because we have talked about them. But like, it's it's a sin for sure, uh, Levinenio. Um I'm honestly like, I had this weird conversation with friends recently about like the queering of reality TV, 
which is to say that like reality TV used mm. to be such a such a straight genre, and I think it's recently like competition shows have like become so much more queer, and I'm actually enjoying it. Like I, <laughs> I was someone who hated reality TV until like a year ago, and I feel like I watch so much reality TV. Not Drag Race. I'm talking about other things, um, but that is like <laughs> so queer. Um, so that's exciting for sure. Do you have one you would recommend? So there, the thing about the thing that's actually exciting about them, and I want to actually like it goes back to like the larger themes of magic queer theater, is that they're not explicitly about queerness in any way. But like the circle, which is a reality show where like people compete in a social media setting, um, like. It's not that the show is explicitly about queerness, but like the most recent season, literally half the contestants are queer. And it's like a non thing. Like they're just there living their lives and they just happen to be queer. And like they form alliances with each other because they're queer, which actually like works great. And that's kind <laughs> of like, you know, that's like my utopian queer fantasy where it's like, not that it's a non issue. Like I don't, I don't see the world in the lens of like we're all exactly the same. That would be a very boring world, but um, I want to live in a world where I'm not being tokenized because I'm queer, or where um, where we're celebrating queer artists, um, not just for their queerness. Like I don't just want to su- support a queer playwright because they're telling this super queer story. I also want to celebrate a queer playwright who's just telling, you know, an average family drama about a family that just happens to be queer, but where the queerness is not the like central tension in any way, and so. Um, so it's just exciting to be, to see, I mean, I think queerness should often be politicized, but it's always, it's also exciting to see contexts where it's being depoliticized. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, and for our queer gifts section, how can our listeners support National Queer Theatre? So folks can donate at www.nationalqueertheatre.org slash donate. And no gift is too big or too small. It makes a big impact for a smaller organization like National Queer Theater. You can also volunteer either remotely or in person at events. And you can buy a ticket to come see the Criminal Queerness Festival, June 22nd to 26th, coming right around the corner for New York City Pride. And it's going to be outdoors and socially distanced at the United Nations and at Lincoln Center as part of their Restart Stages program. Uh, it's going to be very safe. We're going to require masks and distancing. It's all going to be very orderly, so you can return to theater with a sound mind. Um, and you can buy tickets starting at $30 at nationalqueertheater.org, or you can buy a festival pass and see everything in the Criminal Queerness Festival for just $50. And special opportunity, uh, you can get free tickets to the Lincoln Center performances on Today Ticks, um, which will open two weeks before the shows there all summer long. So um, come check us out. Great. Will do. What a deal with that festival pass. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's a good idea. Um, and last but not least, how can folks follow National Queer Theater and you both as well online? People can follow National Queer Theater on Facebook or Instagram at National Queer Theater. And that's theater with an ER, not an RE, because we're querying the theater. So please give us a follow and also sign up for our emails at nationalqueertheater.org. And you can follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Adam Odsess Rubin. 
on Instagram underscore 92. <laughs> and you can keep track of what I'm doing on my website, which is just my first name and last name and my middle initial, adamalsaig.com. Or you can also just follow me on Instagram or Facebook or New Play Exchange. Adam posts a lot of um, charcuterie. That's like his thing. It, so if you want to see some ew. like hot charcuterie pics, it is you my can follow thing. Adam Alsaic on Instagram. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> All I want to my, see. My Instagram is like 90% charcuterie and drag race memes. It's really bad. <laughs> oh, man. Now I need to find some meat and cheese somewhere. <laughs> we will link to that so no one will miss a second of charcuterie content in our show notes. Love that. Well, Adam and Adam, it was so amazing to have you. Yeah, we so appreciate having you both here and cannot wait to see the shows in the criminal queerness festival it's gonna be amazing thank you so much megan and holly for having us this was great thank you for having us it was lovely to speak with you and i look forward to hopefully seeing you in like i don't know is it five weeks now that's amazing can i bring my charcuterie to the festival is that allowed oh my god i i will make you charcuterie in the festival (laughs) i'm gonna find the generators and just like fawn over them Please don't. Please stay. Please stay 10 feet away from the generators. Lol. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us and share us with your friends. We'd love to hear from you if you have any queer culture recommendations or other ideas about how to queer the canon. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 845-445-9251 or email us at thesisonjoan at gmail.com. And you can follow us on social. We're on Instagram and Twitter at thesisonjoan. Until next time, keep it queer. Not that it'd be that hard for y'all to do. Firework time already, baby. Someone's like shooting a gun in our alley and it's like, well, that's not great. That's not fireworks. It's like, I'm like, I'm like, Lucy, are you sure that's a gun? She's like, yes. Oh, Um, it's like every night. It's weird. At what? Tart, maybe rats. Who knows? I mean, that's kind of, that's not fair. You shouldn't shoot a gun for rats, but like. (laughs) there's anything that's justified to shoot at yeah. <laughs> like it might be rats. <laughs> hey it's leslie Udom jr here on the broadway podcast network to tell you about the rise theater directory a program of maestro music rise is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds if you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. 
Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.